What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. We have a ridiculously packed episode, but I guess that's what happens when you take a week off from recording in between the draft and NBA free agency. So we're going to cover a ton. Uh, The report came out today that James Harden will be opting into his deal in hopes of getting a trade out of Philadelphia. Chris Paul has been traded to the Warriors. The Celtics acquired Kristaps Porzingis and sent Marcus Smart to the Grizzlies. John Collins was finally traded. We've got some draft winners and losers, and then I will wrap it up with a little rant on Damian Lillard. But with that, let's get right into it. I'm going to start off today talking about the breaking news that happened today on Thursday, June 29th, and that is that James Harden very unexpectedly decided to opt in to his player option, which is one year for $35.6 million. It was widely assumed that he would decline this deal in hopes of getting a long-term commitment from either the Sixers or the Rockets, were really the two teams linked to him. We didn't hear much else because there's really no other teams with cap space that are good. <laughs> And it kind of felt like the only way Harden was going to go to a non-contender was if it was him going back to Houston, which we know he's got a lot of ties to after spending the majority of his career there. But the most shocking part of this is that the opt-in was not so he could spend another year with Philadelphia, but so that he could be traded. Uh, Woj actually reported in his uh, breaking news tweets that the expectation is that he's probably played his last game as a 76er. And this is likely because the Sixers just didn't want to give him long-term money, and I get it. I mean, he's 34. He's just clearly not what he used to be. He's still a good player. He's still a top 20, top 25 player. He was a borderline All-NBA guy last year, borderline All-Star, averaged over 20 points, over 10 assists, led the NBA in assists. And he had a pretty solid season overall, but he's clearly not the go-to number one option guy that we have seen him be in the past, uh, like he was for most of his career with Houston. And he's even not the guy that we saw in his first year in Brooklyn, where that was arguably the best version of him, in my opinion, because he was playing a little less iso ball, more of a distributor, but he still was able to go get his whenever he wanted, uh, offensively scoring the ball as well. But his playoff performances here certainly did not make a good case for Philadelphia wanting to keep him. And honestly, this version of the team hasn't worked. I mean, I know it's only been a year and a half with uh, Embiid and Harden, but they've gone out pretty ugly both years uh, with Harden playing his worst basketball of the season at the worst possible time. So I get it. Uh, I wouldn't want to pay him. What he wants to get paid either, I assume he's looking for something in the 35 to 40 million range at the minimum. And I'm sure he wants three, four, if not five years. I think he can't even do five years because of the over, there's some over 36 rule. I don't know exactly what it is, but he can only give a four-year deal. But I'm sure he's looking for that four-year extension. And I don't know if it's going to be there. So maybe he's saying, I'll pick this up, and then maybe I get a three-year deal next year, which basically would have been the equivalent. But I have no idea what the money's going to be. But a few teams that have been linked to him so far just over the past few hours, 
the New York Knicks, which I am skeptical on this one because they're in the same division as the Sixers. We normally don't see a ton of intra-division trading. Uh, additionally, I just don't really like this fit very much with Brunson. I think both of them need the ball in their hands to be their most effective. We haven't really ever seen Harden be able to play off ball. And last time we saw Brunson off ball was with Luka and Dallas. And he was just, he was a good, fine player, but he was not what he was this past season. I'm sure part of that is because he improved. But I also think a lot of it was just because of the playing style. Luka's very ball dominant. And we've seen Brunson with a guy like that. And it can work to a certain extent, but it is not an ideal fit for him. I also feel like that team is just an imminent second-round loss waiting to happen. Um, And you just can't win with Harden as your best player. And maybe you could argue Brunson's better than Harden. I still think Harden's better, probably, in a vacuum. But even if it's debatable, your team is not going anywhere if he's your best player. So if he's going to go somewhere and try to actually contend, he's got to be at least the second guy, if not the third guy. And he just isn't going to be that if he goes to the Knicks. Next, we heard the Heat come up. I'm still skeptical on this one, too, because I think they're still going to hold out for Dame because it's a better fit. Um, I think they know it's a better fit, not only probably playing style-wise, but also cultural-wise. I mean, I just don't see Harden. Nothing screams less Heat culture than James Harden does. I think Jimmy Butler might actually try to kill him. And honestly, we've seen Butler play with guys with the same sort of vibes as Harden in the past with Cat. In Minnesota, Ben Simmons in Philadelphia, and neither of those worked out well at all. He clearly is not a fan of playing with the kind of guys that come up small and defer and don't put the extra work in. So I also think Miami has a lot of leverage in the Dame situation, assuming he does get traded just because they just make the most sense, and I'm not sure a lot of other teams are going to give up a ton of assets to get him. Next, the Suns have been uh, briefly mentioned I don't see this happening. I just think it's very complicated logistically. They would obviously need a third team because Aiton would have to be the salary going out on Phoenix's side, but there's no way that the Sixers would want Aiton because they already have Embiid, and those two clearly cannot play together because they're both interior big men that don't shoot a ton from outside, uh, and I think they would struggle to guard uh, wing players. But I also don't think that an Aiton return would satisfy the Sixers, even if... They were able to find a taker for Aiton. I just think the Sixers want something back that's still going to make them somewhat of a contender, and I don't know if Aiton is going to net that because I think if he was going to get that kind of return, then the Suns probably already would have traded him for that exact package, and I'm not sure the Suns wouldn't just prefer that anyway. So I just I don't see that one working out either. The one that does make a lot of sense that uh, has been mentioned as the most likely to happen is the Clippers. Uh, I've seen a few different options here in terms of what the package might be. One is just to have a bunch of expirings, and I would assume maybe some picks. I don't even know if the Clippers can trade any of their picks, Uh, but a Norman Powell and Marcus Morris package works almost exactly from a salary standpoint for Harden straight up. But I just don't think this is really enough for the Sixers. They make that trade, they're taking a clear step back because they're not going to be able to flip those guys for legitimate pieces to other teams either. And it would be very reminiscent of the 2021-2022 Sixers that we saw before the 
uh, Harden and Simmons trade. So when Simmons was sitting out and it was in beat and a bunch of role players, they were a fine team. I'm, I'm sure they would still get a top five seed with that group. Uh, but I just don't see them as – I don't think they'd even win a playoff series with that team, with their second-best player as probably Tyrese uh, Maxey, unless he takes some massive jump. But, I yeah, I just think that you can't do that too because you have to maximize Embiid's prime. You just cannot throw away another prime season of him because he the clock is ticking on him. If they do that and they don't get legitimate pieces back, and Maxi doesn't take some big leap forward, then I really think a beat is uh, probably out of Philadelphia in the next few seasons because I don't blame him for getting impatient. They haven't really been able to put too impressive of a roster around him, uh, mostly with kind of flaky guys like Harden and Simmons. But another option is to trade him for Paul George. But maybe the Sixers might have sent something back with that because I think Paul George is probably better than Harden at this point and probably a slightly better asset. But maybe the Clippers just do this because they want to switch things up and uh, sort of just get a different iteration of this group, finally have an actual ball handler. And plus, it cannot be understated how injury-prone Paul George has been over the past few years. He has played an average of 47 games over the past four years. And to put it in perspective, he makes $45 million. So he's basically getting paid $1 million per game over the last four years, which is not, not what you want as a, as a front office. So I think he's a diminished asset more than people think. I mean, they already were clearly shopping him. He was linked to the Blazers for the number three pick as well as uh, with the Knicks. But he's already 33 now. He's got two years left on his deal at around $45 million. He's probably going to want an extension after this year, if not going into this year. And like I said, I mean, he just can't stay on the court. Four years with an average of 47 games per season is unacceptable from a guy that you're paying that much money. Uh, but maybe to even it out a little bit, they could do uh, – this trade actually works out perfectly. Harden and Tobias Harris to the Clippers for Paul George, Norman Powell, and Robert Covington. I actually think this is probably the most mutually beneficial version of any deal here. I actually like it for both teams. I mean, on the Clippers side, you got uh, a lineup of James Harden, uh, Terrence Mann, Kawhi Leonard, Tobias Harris, and uh, Zubats. And they finally would add a playmaking guard that they've been so desperately lacking. Uh, they've rotated a lot of guys there, Westbrook, John Wall, Reggie Jackson. They've even tried Terrence Mann, a point guard. But they also just get off an injury-prone player in Paul George and a bad contract. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they were cool just kind of moving on from Paul George based on what we've heard about them shopping him this offseason anyway. And then you get Tobias Harris back, who is on a huge contract. He makes like $39 million, but it is expiring. So that cap space would open up next year. They could either bring him back on a much smaller deal. I highly doubt he's going to get a max contract again. Or they could opt to just let him walk and kind of reset with some more cap space with him and Harden both rolling off the books. Because I do want to mention that Harden is not extension eligible, so this will not be a scenario where he's traded and signs an extension. You cannot sign an extension if you sign a two-year deal. It's just not allowed with the way contracts work, and he did just sign a two-year deal, so he's not eligible. So any team that trades for him, he will be a free agent next year regardless. Uh, and then on... 
the Sixer side, you would have probably Maxi at point guard with Norman Powell, Paul George, PJ Tucker, and Embiid. I actually really like this group. They've got a good mix of defense and offense and shooting. They got a, a lot less of a ball dominant player with Harden um, out and Paul George in. They improve a ton defensively because Paul George is a great defender and Harden is okay at best when he's engaged. It also will hand the reins over to Maxi a little bit, which I think is a worthy gamble because I think you kind of got to see what you got with him to see if he can be that next guy um, as a number two option on a legitimate uh, team. He would obviously be the number three option here, but still just having the ball in his hands more, you'll get a better feel for if he's ready to take on that kind of responsibility. And then you don't have to pay Harden long-term. You've got two years left to Paul George. I think that you can justify not giving him an extension more if you trade for him because he hasn't been there, hasn't proven anything. Whereas with the Clippers, it's more of a, he's been there for four years now. And I'm sure you're sitting there feeling like, well, I've played well for you guys. I deserve an extension, blah, blah, blah. So he'd have to prove himself a little bit before they probably would be comfortable giving that. But I still would feel a little better paying Paul George than Harden long-term just because he is a year younger and at least we've seen him perform to some level in the playoffs. So I have a feeling this deal might go down sooner rather than later because I don't think Harden was going to opt in without having the certainty that they will get a deal done. Plus, with the uh, new league resetting on July 1st, there's a lot of things that will change. So I wouldn't be surprised if it happens before July 1st. But we will see. I think the Clippers are the most likely destination. Uh, and I think there's a way to make it beneficial for both sides here. But moving over to some of the deals that already went down, I'm going to start with the Chris Paul Jordan Poole deal. So the agreed to deal here is that the Warriors get Chris Paul, who's got two years left on his contract, $30.8 million this year, which they had to guarantee in order to make uh, <laughs> this trade as well as the Beal trade. So he is on the Bucks for around $30 million this year. And then he does have a $30 million non-guaranteed year next year. So I would be shocked if that gets guaranteed next year, given his age. So basically, it's a one-year $30 million rental for the Warriors. And then the Wizards, in return, get Jordan Poole, who is making around $28 million for this upcoming season, and he's entering the first season of his four-year $128 million extension so the Warriors get off that contract before it ever kicks in, <laughs> even though they just gave it to him last summer. And then they also get Ryan Rollins, who is just a throw-in for salary purposes, and a 2030 first-round pick. This is actually a top-20 protected pick. So didn't seem as bad for the Warriors as initially thought just in terms of that could have been a really valuable pick because guys like Steph and Draymond and Clay probably will not be on the team anymore, so who knows what the Warriors will look like. But top 20 protected, um, I think that's a fine addition for the Warriors. And then they also gave him a 2027 second-round pick. So this trade did really surprise me. I was first shocked that the Warriors had to give a first-round pick with Poole just to get Chris Paul. I mean, this guy is ancient at this point. Um <laughs> I knew Poole's value was low, but I thought they could have gotten something for him. Um, but they didn't really. But I have mixed feelings about this for the Warriors overall. I like it because 
Chris Paul makes every team he's ever played for better. He's brought lottery teams to playoff teams. He's brought non-contending playoff teams to contenders. And he's one of the highest impact guys on winning we've seen in this entire century, honestly. He is a bit washed, but he's still a very, very good player. He's obviously not an all-star anymore. He cannot be relied upon as the lead guy every single night or play big minutes on a deep playoff run. But the idea that he is still not good enough to be a starting point guard is just, it's not accurate. I mean, he's still by far one of the best floor generals in the NBA. He averaged nine assists last year, less than two turnovers. So you know he's going to take care of the ball and run an efficient offense for you. He actually shot 38% from three last year, which is a really good number for him. And he's one of the best in the league at drawing fouls when the other team's in the bonus. And he still grades out very positively across the board in pretty much every advanced metric. So we know what he brings to the table. He's past his prime, but he's still a very good and solid player. And he helped Phoenix a lot last year, both in the regular season and in the playoffs. Uh, I think they might have had a slightly better shot at at least forcing a Game 7 against Denver if Chris Paul had been able to play, considering they might have stole Game 2 in Denver if he hadn't gotten hurt in that game. But there's also reasons to not like it. It's obviously a weird fit. His style is completely contradictory to everything the Warriors do. He's extremely ball-dominant and heliocentric at times. I'm not going to go as far as to call him a ball-stopper, but he definitely thrives when he has the ball in his hand, specifically when running pick-and-rolls with big men. And the Warriors have built their dynasty off of ball movement. And Chris Ball has been extremely reluctant to shoot catch-and-shoot threes uh, over the past few seasons. Uh, I've seen Suns fans make highlight reels of him passing up open shots because of how frustrated they were with it. And look, if he's not going to shoot the open shot, then it's going to hurt them offensively. They've gotten away with Draymond being out there as a non-shooting threat, but I worry that if Paul is still reluctant to shoot the ball that it's going to be really easy to guard them when you've got two guys who are basically only looking to pass. It's a lot easier to guard the other three guys that are running around, specifically Steph, when you can kind of put two guys on him if you've got two passers out there. And I think it's going to be very difficult to get away with playing Chris Paul, Steph, and Clay all at one time defensively. I know Chris Paul is historically a very good defender. He's a nine-time All-NBA guy. And Poole's not a great defender either, but Paul is much smaller. He's a s- even six foot. In the past two years, the Suns have consistently hit him on the defensive end. They're normally putting him on the corner shooter type guy, like a KCP type player is who they put him on consistently. They do not put him on the opposing team's point guard most of the time. And I also question this from a personality aspect. There's a chance that CP3 and Draymond get along really well because they are similar in a lot of ways. Um, But there's also a chance that they butt heads because they're both big personalities and similar big personalities often don't get along. Draymond has also publicly said in the past that he is not a huge fan of Chris Paul. He respects him but doesn't like him. Chris Paul has never really been the guy that had to fit into. He's normally gone to teams that either haven't won anything or they're trying to get over the hump. And so he can kind of step in as the lead guy to show them the way and um, kind of take on that leadership role. And he's not going to have the same kind of pull playing for a four-time champion, especially a team that's consistently beat him. 
So I wonder if he's going to have that same impact from a winning and leadership perspective just because I don't know if he's going to have the same kind of pull in that locker room. So I genuinely don't know how this is going to work out. I could see it working well. I could see Chris Paul coming off the bench. He orchestrates the second unit to perfection. He takes pressure off of Steph as a ball handler. They're just a, a group of really high IQ players, and it makes them very mistake-averse. Uh, Steph basically has a second Draymond out there to help him get the ball in his spots. And Chris Paul can do what Draymond does, but offer way more of a scoring threat in the mid-range. Uh, and it might even be a deadlier uh, version of what Draymond is when running the offense. And they only need him to have two extended periods of minutes each game probably, so he can conserve energy for that because they're not going to be relying on him to be closing every single game necessarily. And I, I think Chris Paul will be able to load manage. He can play less minutes, and he can try to stay fresh for the playoffs, so hopefully he doesn't actually get injured this year. And by season's end, uh, I think there's a chance that he's made them drastically better and that they are much more of a contender than they were last season. But I could also see it going poorly. Chris Paul is a weird fit in this system stylistically. A lot of his strengths are taken away uh, because he's trying to fit in. They aren't able to hold up defensively playing two small guards like that. Draymond and Chris Paul's personalities start to clash. And by midseason, there's questions about if they need to get rid of him, which is similar to the Westbrook narrative last year. Either way, I'm excited to see it play out because I think it's going to be entertaining. Whether it <laughs> flames out or works really well, it's going to be a good story either way. So looking forward to it, but I genuinely don't, have a huge opinion on this because I could actually see either side. And so I kind of just want to wait and see it play out before I jump to too much of a conclusion because, Hey, he might win six man of the year and he might also not be on the team three months into the season. I could see it going either way, but from the wizard side of things, I thought this was a great trade for them. Honestly, I didn't love the return they got in the Bradley Beal trade. And look, I'm not a Jordan pool guy. Do not mistake yourself. I think he's a low IQ player. I think he takes bad shots. I think he has some of the worst turnovers you'll ever see in, in a game. He might be one of the five worst defensive players in the NBA. And despite being labeled a good shooter by most, the percentages do not back that up. He was 34% last season, and he's 34% from three for his career. And his contract is one of the worst in the NBA, without a doubt. But <laughs> with all that being said, I think he's the perfect player uh, for them to have right now. Because they want to be bad. He can go out every night, give you 25 to 30 points, compete for a most improved award. He will get the fans excited, at least have some young player to still um, have some hope for the future. But because of all of his bad tendencies, I think they're going to lose a lot still because I don't think he is a winning player if he's one of your top guys. I think he is a D'Angelo Russell type at best. And you all know how I feel about D'Angelo Russell. <laughs> and even though the contract is awful, it's only four years, and they're not going to be good any of these four years, I promise you. So by the time that maybe they are good, his contract will probably be mostly up at that point. And so they can either move on from him if, if they don't feel like it worked out well, or they can sign him to something more reasonable, or hey, let's say maybe he improves a ton and his contract's worth it by then. So I think... It's okay to have bad contracts when you're a bad team that kind of wants to be bad. And look, they were never going to get a ton back for Chris Paul. He's a massive salary. 
Uh, he probably was only going to play for a, a few select teams. I honestly thought he was going to probably get bought out if he couldn't find a trade partner, and I wasn't sure they were going to find one because I think a lot of teams were anticipating a buyout. And getting someone with uh, Jordan Poole's upside is honestly a huge win for them and a first-round pick. I mean, they got more for Chris Paul than they got for Bradley Beal. Um, so it, it ends up making the, the Beal deal not look quite as bad. And getting Poole at only the age of 23 is worth a gamble for a team that wants to be bad, like I said. Even though I'm not a fan of Jordan Poole, I still think it's a, a worthy gamble. And getting a first-round pick as well is kind of just the icing on the cake here. I know it's top 20 protected, but regardless, the fact that you get an asset along a somewhat promising young player for a guy that you're probably going to cut anyway is definitely a win, in my opinion. So moving over to the three-team deal that we saw last week between the Celtics, Grizzlies, and those Washington Wizards who have been very, very active so far. The, in this deal, the Celtics received Kristaps Porzingis after he opted into his player option, which is one year for $36 million. They also received the 25th overall pick in last week's draft, which they proceeded to trade back three or four times, but eventually settled on Jordan Walsh out of Arkansas at pick number 38. I actually did like that pick for them. They also got a 2024 first-round pick, which is top four protected, and that is via the Warriors. In this trade, Memphis got Marcus Smart. Uh, he still has three years remaining, uh, just under $60 million on his deal, so he's going to make around 20 mil over the next three years. And then the Wizards received Tyus Jones, who has one year left on his deal at $14 million. And then two salary fillers for all intents and purposes, Danilo Gallinari on a one-year $6.8 million deal and Mike Muscala on a one-year $3.5 million deal. I wouldn't be surprised if Gallinari got bought out. I've already seen some rumors that that could happen with some contending teams potentially interested in him. And then the Wizards also received the 35th overall pick in the draft, which they later flipped to the Bulls for two second-round picks. So I love this deal for the Celtics on two fronts. First one, which cannot go unnoticed, is the value they got here. I mean, they somehow got the best player in the trade and two first-round picks. So I'm not sure I've ever seen something like that. Um, the only time you could maybe argue that is if that player is on a bad contract. But it's a one-year deal. If things don't work out well in Boston for Porzingis, then they can just let him walk. Or they can re-sign him. It's totally in their hands. So I think it is great value considering they only gave up Marcus Smart for a better player on top of getting two picks. And then from a fit perspective, I actually really like this fit for Boston. Porzingis was a lot better last year than people realize. I know he's been very injury prone over the past two seasons. But he did play 65 games last year, which would have been enough to qualify him for the major awards in the new CBA. And that was his highest total since his second season back in 2017 before his big injury with the Knicks. In this year, he averaged uh, 23 points per game, eight rebounds, three assists, a block and a half. He shot 50% from the field. He was at 39% from three, 85% from the line, so flirting with 50, 40, 90. He had a career high in two-point percentage, career high in field goal percentage, career high in points per game. His highest three-point percentage since his lone all-star appearance back in 2018. 
It was the best net rating of his career with a plus eight. It was a career high in true shooting percentage with 63%, career high in win shares with 7.7. He was usually known as not a super efficient post scorer, despite being a guy that did like to operate in the posts, but he was actually first in the NBA last season in points per post up at 1.29. That is points scored, so that does not include assists and pass outs, but just the amount that he scored out of the post last year was first across the entire league. And also, he was one of the best in the NBA at attacking closeouts last year, fifth in the NBA in points scored per closeout at 1.23. He's had very solid defensive metrics across the board, basically his whole career as well. And look, the Celtics have not really had a reliable third scorer with legitimate upside in this iteration of the team. It's been more of a by-committee thing with Derek White, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, all those guys hovering around the 12 to 16 points per game. We saw Malcolm Brogdon in that mix as well this past season. But look, all those guys are fine players, but they're not legitimate third options that you can count on every single night to get you 15 to 20 points. And now they're adding a very legitimate 20-point-per-game score. I think he's going to give them a lot better chance to win some games where one of or both Tatum or Brown are having off nights, whereas when those guys had off nights in the past, really the only way they could win is if they were super hot from three from everyone else. And I'm also just excited to see if being a third option can bump up Porzingis's efficiency as well. He shot 50% from the field this year for the first time in his career. A lot of that is just because he does shoot a lot of jump shots. But regardless, I think he is made to be a third option on a contender, and I'm excited to see him do that. He can also play the four or the five. He's a very legitimate rim protector. He's close to two blocks blocks per game for his career at 1.8. So he can be the lone big on the court for sure. He's a very underrated defender overall. He had the fourth lowest in the league on points per pick and roll defended. Uh, among anybody in the entire NBA. But he can also play the four because he's a very legitimate floor spacer. He's 36% from three for his career, and that's on five attempts, so high volume. He was 39% last season. He's shot around 40% in the past as well. So he's not going to clog the lane, and so he can play with Horford or Robert Williams uh, as well. And they can, they can play Horford and Porzingis and really have five out uh, from a spacing perspective. I also think there's really no way to reasonably expect Horford to have another super healthy season while playing big minutes like 30 or more per game. He's 37 now, and I think that now they can transition him to a bench role where he's playing about like 20-ish minutes a game rather than the 30 he's been playing. And that should be able to keep him fresh for the playoffs, which we saw him really struggle from three in the playoffs after having a really good shooting season. I think a lot of that is from just fatigue. Um, and having to have such a high workload throughout the season. And assuming Grant Williams leaves in free agency, which all signs are pointing towards that, I think Horford can basically transition to kind of an upgraded version of that role. Obviously, Horford's a better player than Williams despite being older, but they have a pretty similar skill set just in terms of the fact that they both can knock down threes from outside. They're not ball dominant. They're both good defenders. They both can guard uh, bigger players very effectively. So I really like him in that role coming off the bench for them. Plus, we know Robert Williams is just a huge injury risk every single year for this team, so this gives them legitimate insurance for that as well. And look, not having Smart is definitely going to hurt this team, but what I will say is he was not the same defensively last year as he had been in 
the previous few years. Obviously, he won a defensive player of the year two years ago, and he's been probably their most consistent perimeter defender of the last decade. But he is also not a very consistent shooter, um, despite <laughs> him shooting them a lot. But 32% from three for his career. He was 34% last season. He's only shot 50, sorry, 35% or higher one time in his career. And I think eliminating some of his low percentage shots should be a plus for them in some ways offensively. And this might sound silly, but uh, I, I know Smart was sort of the heart and soul of the team. But I actually think this could be a good thing for Brown and Tatum in terms of just developing their leadership ability. It seems like both of them are rather reserved in general, and they definitely deferred to Smart as a leader, and sometimes even on the court. I mean, it, it kind of felt like the ball always found its way to Smart in the big moments on, a, on the last play <laughs> in really important moments. But I think this will give Brown and Tatum an opportunity to grow in this area, and I think the, the best version of the Celtics is with them as the main leaders on the team, while they are the best players on the team as well. So... But I think the biggest way that they'll probably miss him is just his passing and playmaking. He's been six assists per game each of the last three seasons. He's easily been the team's best playmaker in the past few years. Definitely will put more pressure on the star players to improve in this area. And it's also just one less reliable ball handler for them. I mean, we know Brogdon has some legitimate injury concerns based on the fact that the Clippers uh, passed on this trade in, uh, in the initial version of it. And this potentially does make them kind of thin at guard now after losing him. I think uh, Pritchard will probably get some more playing time now, but I'm not. I, I like Pritchard. I think he's been good when I watch him, but is he ready to be play big time minutes in the playoffs? I don't know. We haven't seen it, so I'm not sure. And maybe they aren't making, uh, aren't done making deals, so maybe they'll add another guard. But I still think they probably do need to add somebody. Uh, their biggest issue's been ball handling and playmaking and decision making late in games. And they just lost one of their best at that. Uh, Smart didn't always make the best decisions in terms of his shot selection, but he was always very reliable with the ball for the most part. And look, this is an area that both Tatum and Brown need to work on. If they can improve their noticeably, um, it'll make a huge difference. But if they can't, it could come back to bite them. I think they would benefit greatly from adding another reliable ball handler. I thought Chris Paul would have been great for them, even though I didn't think that was really a realistic thing for them. And Tyus Jones, who was in the straight, I also thought he would be an ideal fit for this team. But look, we know Brown is not certainly not a good ball handler. Tatum is up and down in that area. They're both a little sloppy at times. They both can turn the ball over. They both can take questionable shots. And so they need to improve there. Um, and this puts more pressure on them to improve there because they don't have a reliable ball handler. Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, these guys are not true point guards. They're uh, score-first guys that can handle the ball and can pass a little. So would like to see the Celtics' uh, top two guys take a leap there. Um, but overall, love this trade for the Celtics. I think Porzingis fills a lot of needs for them and just adds a whole other element offensively as a reliable third scorer as well as... Uh, a guy that'll fit right into what they do defensively. On the Grizzlies side of this, I thought this was a pretty big price to pay for Marcus Smart. Uh, and look, given that Morant's going to be out for the first 25 games, I definitely didn't think trading Tyus Jones was on the their to-do list this offseason. Um, but I was even more surprised that Memphis gave up picks alongside Tyus Jones. From a value perspective, 
This feels like a pretty massive overpay to me on the Memphis side of things. I really don't love this trade for them in that way. I mean, giving up two picks and Tyus Jones for Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart is better than Tyus Jones at a lot of things, but Tyus Jones is also better than Marcus Smart at a lot of things. They're very different players, even though they play similar positions, but felt like an overpay. But from a fit perspective, so just in a vacuum of Memphis's team before and after this picks aside, I think this is a great deal for them. I think Smart brings all of the positives that Dylan Brooks brought to this team without most of the negatives. Like there, There's still some overlap between them and their flaws. So, I mean, they're both not very good shooters. They both think they're good shooters and like to shoot a lot. Both of them are floppers. Both like to get underneath other players' skin. But the difference here is maturity. I think that he will be a grown-up in this locker room, and that is exactly what they need badly given the whole Joss situation and the fact that this is just a really young team. I don't think he's going to take shit from the younger guys. He's going to hold them accountable. And look, he hasn't won a ring, but he is the most accomplished of pretty much anyone on this team. He's at least made a finals and was a key contributor. Um, I'm not sure any of their other core guys really have. Steven Adams had some good runs with the Thunder, um, but I don't believe he was on that finals team. And also, Smart just seems like the consummate Memphis Grizzly. I mean, he plays hard. He's going to be the first guy on the floor. He gets into it defensively, uh, thrives on that end of the ball. He's not going to take shit from other players. He's a winning player, and he completely embodies the grit and grind um, slogan for this this franchise. And my only real concern uh, from a fit perspective here is they might be a little undersized now. I mean, Jaws 6'3", Smart is 6'3", and Bane is 6'5". So if they played those three guys together, I'm not really sure who's going to guard some of the bigger wings like a Kawhi or KD or LeBron. I suppose you can put Smart on them because he's good at guarding bigger guys. But I think you can do that in spurt, spurts, but I don't know if he can be relied on to do that consistently. But I also just... I mean, Bain is a fine defender. He's certainly not a liability, but it's certainly not a strength of his either. Um, he's definitely more of an offensive-minded uh, player. So I, I definitely wouldn't trust him to guard those guys either. So I think they probably still need to add another bigger wing unless they see a leap coming out of someone like Zaire uh, Williams, for example. But this pickup definitely raises my opinion of Memphis overall. I think they are still not legit contenders, um, I think a lot of their issues that they had in the playoffs last year versus the Lakers will not be solved by a Marcus Smart, for example. I mean, offensively, I still worry about them. They were one of the, if not the worst shooting team in the NBA last season. Um, Luke Kennard was a big help to that, but outside of him and Bain, they really don't have any reliable guys from outside, and Smart certainly doesn't fit that bill either. I also question offensively their reliable options after job. I think Desmond Bain has been a, a, a pretty good second option, but I think unless he takes another leap, he's probably best suited as a number three. Jaron Zach Jackson Jr. showed some flashes offensively last year that maybe we hadn't seen in years past, but he still is not consistent enough on that end, in my opinion. So on nights where Jaw doesn't have it, are they going to be able to get enough offensively out of guys? But overall, I do like the smart fit. I think it's it makes them a better team, um, but I still think they have some... Um, Things around the edges that they need to clean up, just specifically from the, the wing position. 
moving over to the wizard side of this, uh, I thought this was a, a pretty fine trade for Washington. I would have liked them to be the team getting one of those first round picks, if not both of them, considering that they gave up the best player in the trade and received probably the worst player in the trade. But I know they probably didn't have much leverage because Porzingis could have just opted out of his deal. And I'm sure he probably threatened that if they if they didn't agree to the trade and they would have lost him for nothing. So plus it's not exactly like his um, trade value is super high considering how he's been over the past few seasons with Dallas um, before his uh, sort of improved season this last year with Washington. But given that, I really like Tyus Jones as a player. He's probably been the best backup point guard in the league for a few years now. He led the NBA in assisted turnover ratio for like the fifth year in a row or something. <laughs> it was 5.8, which is ridiculous. Basically six turnover, sorry, six assists for every turnover. Um, he's at worst an average three-point shooter. He's 36% for his career. He was 37% last season, both very respectable and fine numbers. And look, despite being a little undersized at six foot, even he's got pretty good defensive metrics overall. So he's certainly not a liability on that end. He's also one of the most durable players in the league. He played 80 games last season. Um, and when you take into account the COVID shortened seasons, he's played almost 75 games or more basically every year for the past four seasons. There's not a lot of guys that can say that. And look, he's just a great player to have for a bad team or a tanking team. He's not quite good enough where he's going to make you win a lot of games, but he plays the right way. He'll get you into your offensive sets. He'll make sure you're getting good shots. He won't let you get into too bad of habits offensively, which a lot of bad teams do. And I think he's a good fit next to Jordan Poole for that exact reason. I think it could have been ugly if Poole's sort of the lead ball handler guy. Um, but he's not. He's going to hold him in check, hold him accountable, not let him get too crazy on that end. And honestly, I think Tyus Jones is a prime candidate for a most improved type guy. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he averaged 15 and 9 or even something like that, uh, even though they probably will not be a very good team. But I like Tyus. I like this pickup for them. Uh, under the radar move so far this playoffs for sure. Up next, it finally happened. John Collins has been traded <laughs> after years of speculation. Um, yes, the Utah Jazz acquired John Collins, who has three years left and $78.5 million over that span. That last year is a player option, but given that number, I think there's a good chance he's picking that up. Um, and in return, all Atlanta got was... An expiring Rudy Gay contract of $6.4 million and some future second-round picks. Obviously, there's a lot of cap relief in that, but it's really just a salary dump, which is pretty crazy to me. They're still going to be over the cap now, but they did clear $19 million in space. So they were going to be above the first tax apron before this deal. And this ownership has actually never gone into the tax before. So it's not surprising they were trying to get under. I actually saw reports that they were mandating that the front office get below that number. So that might've been why they settled for this, but they're now $13 million below the tax, which means they could use their 12.4 mid-level exception rather than the 5 million taxpayer mid-level exception. But that would hard cap them. Uh, and they basically have no other money to sign anybody, even minimum guys. 
so I highly doubt they use the full mid-level um, unless they unload some more salary, which certainly is possible. I know we've seen DeAndre Hunter and Clint Capella have been rumored to maybe get moved as well. But I do think that taxpayer mid-level exception is more reasonable. That way they can use that and still have around $8 million to play with to add other players uh, on minimum deals as well to fill out the roster. And look, they probably just did this because they want to avoid paying the tax uh, as opposed to opening up the full mid-level exception. They just didn't want to pay the tax. But to me, look, I get it. I mean, if you're mandated from your owner, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. But it's just crazy to me that they couldn't get more for John Collins. And I really do not understand the John Collins hate around the league. I'm going to go on a little rant here defending him. For his career, he's a 16-point per game, 8 rebound per game, 1 block per game. He is very efficient. He shoots 55% from the field. He's 35% from three for his career, so he spaces the floor well for his size, and 78% from the free throw line. He's got a positive assist-to-turnover ratio, so he takes care of the ball. He had a down year last year. There's no denying that. It was a career low in points per game, rebounds per game, field goal percentage, three-point percentage. But it's hard to blame him um, because there's known friction between him and Trey. We've seen reports of that over the years, and... Look, this team has been publicly trying to dump him for years now. Ever since he signed that extension, they've basically been shopping him. So I don't blame him for not playing super well when you know that the team doesn't even want you anyway. But he is still only 25 years old. He has been basically the second option on the Eastern Conference Finals team. He's played 55 or more games every single year except for one year where he was suspended. He... Before last year, shot 39% from three over a three-year span, so huge sample size on good volume. He's averaged as many as 22 points and 10 rebounds. He had back-to-back seasons of 55% from the field, 40% from three, 80% from the free throw line. So uh, 55, 40, 80, it's really impressive. He's career 62% true shooting, which is very good and well above league average. He's one of the most efficient players in the whole league in his career. He does not demand touches. He doesn't take bad shots. He's average from a defensive metric perspective in his career. At worst, certainly not a liability on that end. He's got extremely good offensive advanced metrics. Um, and he's got the fifth highest win shares from his entire draft class. And only after Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell, Bam Adebayo, and Jared Allen. And he's ahead of guys like Laurie Markkinen, Darren Fox, OG Ananobi, Kyle Kuzma, Derek White. So look, he's been a very productive, good, efficient player since he came in the league. He's probably a little overpaid, but he's not grossly overpaid. The $25 million range is totally fine considering how the salaries are ballooning nowadays. I mean, we've got guys making into the 50s, almost 60. And we've got a lot of guys that are probably better than Collins, but not that much better that are in the 30 to 35 range. And they should not be there. So 25 to me is is fine. It's a little more than you'd like, but not enough to say you can't get any assets back. And I see no reason that he can't be a marketing type reclamation project, similar to what Utah did with Lurie this past year. Look, Lurie was drafted in 2017, actually same year as John Collins. Um, he was a bit better than expected early, but he slowly regressed each year with the Bulls to the point where they just didn't even want him anymore. He hit restricted free agency, and he was one of the last players signed. I think it was into 
August or September before he got signed, one of the last players. And even then, Bulls had the chance to match it and chose not to. And the Cavs got criticized for it. They said he was overpaid. They said it was a weird fit on the roster. People did not like it. And then, look, he gets a change of scenery and suddenly becomes an all-NBA caliber player, a starter in the all-star game. And look, I'm not saying I think Collins will become an all-star necessarily, but both have had very similar careers in a lot of ways. They both were drafted in the first round of 2017. They both started uh, a little earlier and were a little better earlier than expected. Both of them sort of stagnated or regressed a little bit. Then suddenly the team didn't want them anymore, and now they're both in Utah. (laughs) And I fully expect Collins to have a bounce-back year, at least in, in his Utah tenure i think he will be much improved i bet he restores his value quite a bit will hardy will get him um, playing the best ball that he can and i refuse to believe that this guy peaked at the age of 23 and that by age 25 he's just a shell of himself so we'll see (laughs) i wouldn't be surprised if he plays well and then danny ainge builds that uh (laughs) value back up and then suddenly he's a real legitimate asset again but from a uh, cap impact perspective for Utah, they were going to have over $47 million in cap space, uh, but they absorbed Collins uh, and his contract into that space, so now they're projected to have about $25 million post-trade. So this isn't a huge impact because I don't think Utah was going to go for like the big fish in the free agency, but uh, they were definitely going to be one of those teams that could overpay like two guys, for example. They could have said, we're going to pay... Fred Van Vliet and Brooke Lopez and take them away from their teams. I, I Lopez, obviously an example. I don't think they would sign him given they have Walker Kessler, but just you get the sentiment there. Um, but now they could still probably repay one guy. So let's say, I mean, they're thin at guard. I know Van Vliet's been linked to Houston, but um, they still could put a somewhat desirable contract out there for him. So we'll see. I bet they'll sign probably a few intermediate guys instead of going for uh, the big fish, like I said. Um, but I think they kind of viewed this as like a let's basically sign John Collins to a $19 million deal because that's the um, difference they got in this. So, But overall, um, I love the trade for Utah. I think it's a great gamble, obviously. I think Collins could definitely turn it around. Don't love the deal for Atlanta. I think it was a tax money move mandated by their owner, which I think is lame. But it is what it is, and so I, I guess uh, if you're trying to attack the GM for something he was basically told he had to do, uh, it's kind of hard to do. So, Okay, so next I'm going to move to the NBA draft from last week. have not spoken since then. Just going to give some quick heavy hitters on winners and losers. Um, first winner I have, this is a very obvious one, but the San Antonio Spurs, obviously, they formally took uh, Wembenyama now, more of a formality. I think we all knew he was going to be the number one pick. And so they, they were going to be winners no matter what. Getting arguably the best prospect of all time, <laughs> or at least a top five prospect of all time, is going to be a win. I think everyone thinks he's going to hit. I think he's going to be a good player. Uh, my only concerns are if he gets hurt. But I think if he plays, he's going to be a very good player in the NBA for a long time. So I think the Spurs got themselves a star here. Uh, but I also want to throw in, I did like their second-round pick as well. They took City Sissoko at 44th overall. This is a 6'8 wing. He played in the 
G League with the Ignite team, averaged 13, 4, and 3. Did not shoot phenomenal from 3 at only 30%, but he showed a ton of defensive upside. He averaged 2.2 stocks per game at a 5.3 stock rate. He was a very efficient player overall, had a 60% true shooting. He took care of the ball, showed a good amount of playmaking ability, had a uh, assisted turnover ratio close to 2. And I think he's going to be a late-round steal. I think that he is extremely comparable to Bilal Koulibaly uh, in terms of a prospect. And he did it uh, more consistently at a higher level against better competition. And they got him 37 picks later. So I really like that pick for them. Um, obviously, you're kind of throwing darts once you get to the second round. But I thought he was a high upside um, fly, flyer worth taking in the second round. Next, I will move to the Blazers. Same sort of thing here. I mean, I am a big scoot guy. So I think that they were huge winners just in the fact that the Hornets passed up on him and he was able to follow them at number three. Because one, I think I think they're probably going to keep him. So they'll get to just have him and he'll probably be a great player for them. But also, if they do decide to uh, go win now mode and did want to trade him, he's going to net a lot more value in the open market than a Brandon Miller will uh, based on what we've heard. But I just love Scoot. I mean, he's just got that swagger to him. He was great in the interviews on draft night. Um, he says all the right things. He seems like he's got that dog in him. Uh, first one in the gym, last one to leave, that kind of guy. Just always putting work in, as you can tell by his basically NBA-ready body at the crisp age of 19 years old. Uh, and we'll look, whatever they do with Dame, I expect him to be good right away, Scoot. I mean, I think he's a winning player. I could see him competing for Rookie of the Year, particularly if they trade Dame. Um, but I, I just think we've seen a lot of players or prospects similar to him come into the league and be really good right away. Um, guys like Westbrook, Derrick Rose, John Morant, John Wall, all guys that within their first two years pretty much had an immediate impact. Um, I will also say I thought Chris Murray was good value for them. Uh, Keegan Murray's brother, they got him at 23rd overall. And... Keegan went fourth, so if he's even comparable to his brother, then it's obviously going to look like a steal. I think he's slightly a slightly worse player, but overall they have the same strengths, the same weaknesses, the same kind of playing style, so I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being pretty comparable as a player, which would be very good value for them at 23. Next, this might be my biggest winner of the draft the Oklahoma City Thunder, they traded up from the number 12 spot to the number 10 spot. In return, they absorbed the Davis Bertans contract from the Mavericks, and they drafted Kaysan Wallace. And I absolutely love this pick so much. I think he fits perfectly with what the Thunder players do. He plays hard on both ends. He can handle the ball. He can shoot from outside. He's a high IQ player. And look, I picked Wallace to be an all-star. So I think he's going to be the steal of the draft, and I feel even better about it now based on where he went. And I think long-term, he's a great fit next to SGA in the backcourt. I think he can take pressure off of SGA as the main ball handler and defending team's best guards at times so that SGA can uh, have more energy scoring the ball on offense. I think both of them can run the offense as well as Josh Giddy can. So they've got three guys that can orchestrate um, and run sets offensively. Uh, and look, they have a very legit five in Wallace, SGA, uh, Jalen Williams, Josh Giddy, and Chet Holmgren. 
All of them are 24 or younger. They all fit great positionally. They're all versatile, can play multiple positions, and they're all locked in long-term. They still have a million picks at their disposal as well to trade um, if they do want to make a big move and go for a more proven guy, or if they just want to use those picks to trade up in drafts and get more young guys, they also can do that. And look, I think the Thunder can make a legitimate playoff push next year if, if Chet can stay healthy and he plays how a lot of people think he can. And then I, as well as if they add some front court depth and free agency, which I definitely think they need to because they were very thin on the front line last year. But even with that, they were, uh, what, two games away from making the playoffs. So would not be surprised at all if they were a legitimate playoff team next year and even avoided the play-in altogether. Uh, and I think a big part of that will be because Kaysan Wallace absolutely loved this player, loved this pick, thought it was a brilliant move by Presti and a total steal. And the last winner I have is the Houston Rockets. This is going to sound counterintuitive because I picked both Amin Thompson and Cam Whitmore to be busts, and those were their top two picks. <laughs> but the point is they both undeniably have upside. I'm aware of that. Just because I said they're going to be busts, I'm just going out the numbers that there's going to be more busts than people think, and they're both kind of raw-ish talents. And both of them have a lot of flaws. And we haven't seen them in huge sample size against great competition. But look, when you're a bad team like Houston, you should be definitely betting on upside. Especially at pick 20. You strike out on pick 20, literally, who cares? It doesn't matter. You are like you don't expect to get a legit player at pick number 20. So when you're bad, you're taking shots on high upside guys. And that's exactly what they did with Whitmore. And look, I was shocked he fell to 20. A lot of people had him as a bona fide top Five guy. I mean, some people had him going as high as four. Uh, there was definitely some buzz. He was going to maybe fall out of the top ten, but it was even more surprising they fell out of the lottery altogether, and he passed through a lot of the really smart teams in the late teens, the Warriors, Heat, Lakers. Um, obviously, people were saying they didn't love his medicals. He did an interview great, and his coach did not endorse him, uh, which is <laughs> very strange. I... Can't imagine that's going to be a good look for Villanova moving forward. But regardless, um, I was really tempted. I I tried to like Whitmore. I just his lack of playmaking and his ball stopping tendencies scared me off a little bit. But overall, I just think it was great value, and I think Amen Thompson and Cam Whitmore are two of the highest upside players. And look. Maybe they'll both bust. Maybe one of them will bust. But even if one busts, it's still a huge win for them. Because if if one busts, that means the other one lived up at least somewhat to the expectations. And I think their expectations are high based on their talent. So if they're able to get both of these guys hit, then it's going to be a, a total uh, all-time great uh, drafting performance from them. But overall, I just like the fact that a bad team capitalized on upside um, I hate when the bad teams go for fit uh, when it's just they're not good enough to need to draft for fit. You should just take the best available guy talent-wise, and I think that's what they did with uh, both picks, honestly. Moving over to the losers. First one has to be the Hornets. Brandon Miller over Scoot is not it. Um, unlike Scoot, who was great on TV, like I said, felt like Brandon Miller was awful talking to uh, the reporters after he got drafted, did not interview well at all. I know that's not always a super fair critique because a guy like Kawhi Leonard doesn't interview well, blah, blah, blah. 
But he just didn't have. I hate saying this, but he just didn't have the like it factor that Scoot feels like he does. I don't know. He just doesn't have that swagger. I've just I've got concerns about his small frame, his lack of playmaking, his middling athleticism, his off the court stuff. His he's shrunk in the biggest moments down the stretch in college, and he's also got this really low uh, release on his shot which I definitely have concerns about uh, in the next level. The high-release guys that can get a shot over anyone tend to hit a lot better than the guys who have weird form. I mean, we've seen in the past, like, uh, Tyrese Halliburton's just got the most bizarre form ever, but it's effective. <laughs> so I, I can't, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it, it's not exactly the ideal form. I mean, I'm sure they'll work on it with him, but as of right now, it's a, I'm worried he might not be able to get shots over uh, comparable sized guys. And look, this is not even that much of a knock on Miller. I just, I just can't understand how they passed on Scoot. Scoot was just the clear, better prospect to me. He was the clear, better prospect to most people. And so I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I hate, I hate the pick. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Next is the Orlando magic. I like Anthony black, but they've got a big log jam now at guard. I mean, they've got him, Markel Fultz, Cole Anthony, Jalen Suggs. All of them are young. All of them can't shoot at all. Like, actually, none of them can shoot. They're all bad shooters. <laughs> Fultz is a very good defender. Black is a very good defender. Suggs has been advertised as a good defender. Cole Anthony's not even a good defender, so he's probably the worst of the bunch. But regardless, it's just so redundant. I know I just said I don't like when bad teams draft for fit, but I genuinely don't think the Magic are that bad. I think they could be good next year. I think they could make a playoff push if they put the right pieces together. But I just think they need to consolidate now. I mean, Black is a guard, but he's the biggest of the bunch. He's 6'7", so in theory he could play wing, but he's not a good shooter, obviously. That's his biggest flaw. So I just think that the Magic need to make a move now. They kind of forced their hand in doing so. Um, I like Black. I think he'll be a good role player, but 6 was maybe a little high for him as well. And then, this is less about him, but more about Jed Howard. He was a huge reach at number 11. I mean, he shot the ball pretty well from three in college. Not amazing. He was below 40%. But he's still just really raw. He's not much of a defender right now. He's not a good ball handler. Doesn't play make at all, really, for others. He projects right away as really nothing more than a spot-up shooter to help stretch the floor. But the problem is, there were better shooters on the board. So, I mean... There's two ways to look at this off of like young talent and potential or, or drafting for need with shooting. But if you wanted to go shooting, Grady Dick is a better prospect in my opinion. They could have drafted him. He went two picks later. Jordan Hawkins is a better shooter than he is. I don't love Hawkins as a prospect, so I'm not going to fawn over him. But the point is he, he's viewed by most as a better shooter and less of a raw player ready to con- more ready to contribute right away. And then... Um, Pozemski, the guy who went to the Warriors from Santa Clara. I mean, he shot 44% from three in college. So he is obviously a better shooter than Howard and much more polished and much more ready to contribute right away. Um, But if you wanted, let's say they're just going for raw young talent, I think there are better options on the board for that too. I mean, Kobe Bufkin went 15 to the Hawks. I think he's got a much better all-around game. Uh, he's very much a comparable shooter. I know it would have only hurt the launch him even more, so maybe they didn't want another guard. But still, better high upside player than uh, 
Howard, in my opinion, they were teammates at Michigan, and Bufkin was the better player. And then Keontae George, who went to Utah at 16, he way higher upside overall, in my opinion. Again, maybe they didn't want another guard, but if you're going to draft for <laughs> positional need at 11, then why are you not doing it at 6? So it's just inconsistent. Uh, view on how to draft people, in my opinion. And then Cam Whitmore went at 20. I think, I mean, <laughs> take him. He's a much better uh, prospect. So I thought they also just could have traded back and they still could have got him in maybe the late teens, maybe even the early 20s. I mean, some people had him in that range. And this reach of a pick kind of reminds me of Cam Johnson back in 2019, who also actually went number 11. I thought they also could have traded back and still got him. And that one did work out. Um, so maybe I'll be wrong, but I think that it's different because Cam Johnson was very mature. He was 23, I think, coming into the league. Very polished. You knew exactly what you were getting. Not a raw guy at all. And Jet is totally a project uh, at best. Shooting is really the only main skill that we've seen him be above average at uh, on either end of the ball. So I just don't love that pick at 11. And then my last loser is the Washington Wizards. I know a lot of people liked their pick of Bilal Koulibaly at seven, but I personally thought it was a reach. I didn't see a single mock draft that had him going that high. And on top of that, they gave up a, a second round picks to move up to seven to get him. So uh, I look, I don't know if Indiana was going to take him at seven, but I personally just, I wouldn't have traded up for him. And I thought seven was high for him anyway. And look, he averaged, I know they were flashing, he averaged 11 points per game. But that was a little bit deceiving because half of those were in a lower level league uh, for the um, organization he was uh, playing in. And once he got called up to play at a higher level on the team with Wembenyama, he only averaged 6.1 points per game. And I'm going to read to you the list of international prospects to average single digit points since 2010 in the highest league that they played in uh, among guys that were drafted in the lottery. So in 2011, Bismack Biombo averaged 6.4 points per game. In that same draft, Jan Vesely averaged 9.1. 2015, Mario Hazonia averaged 7.7. 7. 2016, George Papayanis averaged 9.0. 2016 again, Dragon Bender averaged 2.1. 2017, Frank Nilakina averaged 7.2. 2020, Danny Avdia averaged 4.0. And then last year, 2022, Usman Dang. Average 8.9. So there are zero examples since 2010 of anyone that fits that profile becoming a star getting drafted in the lottery. Avdia is the only potential example of even becoming a starting caliber player. And outside of Biombo, who is arguable if this is true, but all of them are massive busts. I mean, Ding was awful for the Thunder last year. He didn't get any playing time. Nilakina has bounced around and just he's awful. Complete zero on offense. Dragon Bender is already out of the league. Papianis, I don't even know if he ever played in the league. Hazonia has been out of the league for years. Jan Vesely was out within a couple seasons. Um, Bismack Miamba was out of the league for a little bit too. He's but really never been more than a, a, a backup and probably best suited for a third uh, center role rather than just an, uh, a main backup. And I know he got his big payday at one point, but considering where he was drafted in the top 10, I think you'd have to call him a bust. 
So really no examples of guys like this hitting. And so people get so mesmerized by the late growth spurt guys. But are we sure that he's even good at basketball? Like, have we watched him play? What's he good at? <laughs> have we seen him actually produce against decent competition? And I know everyone's going to bring up the, oh, what if he's Giannis? And I'm like, okay. Giannis was like 6'11", almost 7 foot. This guy's 6'7". That's a huge difference. Do you think Giannis would be a multi-time MVP if he was 6'7"? Because I don't. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be nearly as dominant in the paint. I think he'd be way worse offensively. He'd probably still be good defensively. But he can't shoot. And neither can this guy. So I I just don't think it's comparable. I think part of why Giannis is so good is because of his he's a physical specimen. He's 6'11 and moves like a guard, but he's massive. He's put on so much muscle too. Cool Bali is thin. He's he's long, but he's frail and he's six seven, which is a good size to be, but not for a dominant player if you don't have skills. And I, I just don't know if he has redeeming qualities on offense. So I'm willing to be wrong on this because I know a lot of people do like this pick, but I'm going to bet on history from what we've seen. There's just not a lot of guys that average six points per game and then come into the league and are good. Uh, <laughs> there's probably a reason he was averaging six points per game. So I'm not a fan of cool ball at all. And then lastly, I want to wrap up talking about Damian Lillard. So I am fed up with this guy. I'm tired of the reports. Every few days, it's a new thing. They're saying, oh, he wants to stay. And he's they're committed to building a contender around him. And then the next day, he'll talk on a podcast about how he would accept a trade to Miami or Brooklyn. And then he's posting stories with the music playing and saying, welcome to Miami. And he's, it's just, it's, I'm so tired of it. It feels like he wants to leave, but he doesn't want to tell them he wants to leave. He wants them. He wants no blood on his hand. He wants to say, I'm not going to ask out, but I kind of want you to trade me. And then they're doing the same thing. They don't want the blood on their hands because the Blazers want to trade him and start rebuilding. But they don't want to be like, they don't want to look back and be like, we traded our, our franchise guy. The last thing they want is Dame to come out and be like, yeah, man, I gave everything to that city and... They traded me. It's a business. What are you going to do? Um, they're going to be like, shut up, dude. Shut up. We catered to you so much. You <laughs> you were basically gaslighting us, holding us hostage, talking about going to other teams. I'm just, he needs to pick a side and commit. If you're going to ask out, just, just do it. Ask out. Say you want to be traded. If you're going to stay, just shut up then. Stop teasing with other teams. Stop with the constant updates. And look, I know you're trying to pitch. You want Draymond Green to come. You're going to re-sign Jeremy Grant. But even if you do that, you're not a real contender. You're not going to beat Denver. You're not going to beat probably Phoenix. If the Clippers get hardened, you're not going to beat them. You may not even beat the Lakers. Because you're kind of just discount Warriors. Because Dame's worse than Step. You got Draymond. Grant is worse than Wiggins. Simon's. At this point, maybe comparable to Clay, but you're basically trying to copy the Warriors, except you don't have the championship pedigree, you don't have a, a proven coach, and you don't have a top 10 player all time like Steph Curry. So I'm just, I'm over it. They need to just come to a conclusion on this. And you know what, Dame? Just ask out. Do it already. We're tired of it. <laughs> 
If I see one more Chris Haynes post on Twitter talking about how they're committed to building a contender, well, guess what? You're not going to do it. You're not building a contender, so just go to Miami, compete there. No one's going to hold it against you. Every single person is just begging you to get traded. So please, just do it or don't do it and shut up. (laughs) And that's going to do it for this episode of the Sean Jones NBA show. I know I went quick through a lot of those things, even though we're an hour in. But it was a lot of stuff to get through, and it's not slowing down anytime soon, I don't think. So... As I said, I'm recording this Thursday night, so free agency starts tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. So <laughs> get ready for those 601 uh, Shams and Woj notifications where guys uh, miraculously already have their deals figured out one minute into free agency like they weren't already talking before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm going to do a pod next week based on the little first wave of free agents. I know typically the top guys take a little bit more time uh, and it's more of like the role players that sign right away but regardless obviously there's a lot of really really interesting role players out there um a lot of the bruce brown types i wouldn't be surprised if we saw houston sign a van vliet uh, right away we've also seen them link to dylan brooks interested to see what happens with uh brooke lopez and chris middleton in milwaukee but we will get resolution on all this stuff soon And as soon as Harden is traded, I will definitely talk about that as well. And I'm sure we're going to get some more trades. But it's an exciting time to be an NBA fan. This is probably the best time of the year outside of (laughs) the playoffs. Uh, Just the drama associated with the offseason. But uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Like I said, we will talk soon. uh, And thanks again.